And I can't tell you how many fish I've seen come up and take a dead hemlock needle, you know, off the surface. And, and, and I, you know, I'm sitting there trying to mash the hatch and everything else. And, and the fish just came up and ate a dead leaf. It's, it's a really cool creek. I've gotten, I've had some really difficult days that can be a super, super tough river to fish, but I've had some really, really spectacular days out there too. So I think that's my, that's my second one with the Abrams Creek. Abrams is number one for busting your butt, right? One of the, one of the things that a friend of mine who is probably the best fly fisherman I've ever known in my life, his name's Henry Williamson. He lives up in Sky Valley, Georgia. And Henry says, watch every back cast and then make your forward cast. Don't just pick it up, throw it behind you. Three, two. Welcome into Southeastern Fly, Wisdom from the Guides. Thanks for stopping by uh, and giving us a listen. Feel free to share this with your friends and fishing partners. The contest for the Bag of Swag continues for the Wittiest Five Star Review. The Wittiest Five Star Review wins the Bag of Swag. And we've got a lot of stuff in the Bag of Swag uh, that we're going to be giving away. We've we've had several entries into the contest. We've got a few new ones this month. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to highlight three of them. We've got Fly Fishing Expert Connor, which I'm not so sure about that name, uh, Fly Fishing Expert. I'm not sure if he really is or not, and I have a I have a feeling I know who this is. His entry is going to be tough to beat. I'll just be real honest with you. Pete3957 had a real nice review, as well as N. Van Rees. Uh, he had a really, really cool review. Anyway, it's the wittiest five-star review. We're going to put all the reviews starting in August in front of a panel, folks that don't have anything to do with this show so far, uh, and they're going to be the ones that picks who gets the bag of swag. Remember, the contest started on August 1st, and it finish, finishes December 25th, 2020, so it's, it's over on Christmas Day. The win- winner will be announced on Season 3, Episode 1, so if you're going to get something in on the Uh, to win the bag of swag you might want to go ahead and do that all right so let's get rolling the wisdom from the guides round two let's welcome back to southeastern fly a couple of guys uh who have been on uh, on the uh, show before first one is the owner of fly fishing made it made easy live from maryville tennessee mr dan munger dan welcome into the show thanks david super happy to be back again i appreciate you having me back yeah man i I know this is going to be really good can't have a wisdom from the guides if you don't have another participant or two so we're going to welcome in now the owner of Unicoi Outfitters in Helen, Georgia, and now from Clarksville, Georgia, too, uh, live from the beautiful North Georgia mountains where there's currently a cyclone warning, Mr. Jimmy Harris. Jimmy, welcome in. <laughs> I hope we make it through the meeting. I hope so, too. Glad to be here. Thanks a lot. I didn't know North Georgia was on the other side of the of the world, but apparently it is because you can have cyclones over there. And I think, we, I think we've moved to below the Tropic of Capricorn or Cancer or whichever one it is. I believe you're right. Yeah. The, your place still looks the same. I'll let you know that you really did a good job of picking it up and moving. It's it's all part of uh, climate change. <laughs> yes, yes, it is. <laughs> oh. Well, guys, hey, thanks for dropping by for this ep- episode. Let's get started with the format just so that we're all clear uh, on what we're supposed to do here. We'll see if we can get through this. So these questions have been asked by one or more of my clients, asked on my Instagram or Facebook followers, members of fly fishing clubs, 
and or people in fly shops around the country that I just happen to, to bump into, i.e. around the country means around Tennessee over the past month or so. With this format, I really think everybody can learn something, probably even us three. But everybody can learn something because these two guys are going to give some good information because I know they have a good background. I know they're on the water a lot, and I know that they're interested in helping people. So they're going to formulate their answers, and I'm going to try to do the same around all levels of fly fishing and all levels of skill. Uh, So I think it's going to be really interesting. We will all be participating in the discussion. So you may hear a little bit from each of us. Our voices are very distinct, so you shouldn't have uh, trouble following us. So with that, guys, let's roll. All right, so first question, we're going to run right into it. Dana, uh, I ran into Dana in the fly shop. Dana asked, what's the absolute best tip you can give me for fishing dry flies on small mountain streams of Appalachia? And and in particular, Dana was headed up to Teleco. So that kind of gives you an idea of of where her, her question was formed from. So Dana, I would say this, this is preference. The type of water that I like to fish is riffly water. Uh, short shallow pools where you can easily see the bottom but it's deep enough to hold a fish but once you find a fish or two there you're going to find out exactly what i'm talking about and find out a how easy they are really to fish two you got to be pretty stealthy uh which which means you don't need to walk in the water and all that stuff that we'll probably get into that a little bit later as well but try to be stealthy doesn't mean you have to wade right up the middle of the stream i like to fish a full hackle dry fly which in in my case my favorite fly in the whole wide world uh, as far as dry flies go, is number 10, a big thunderhead. That's a big fly. But the yeah, tip, is. probably the best absolute tip that I can give you for fishing dry flies on small streams, like I'm talk- like we're talking about here, is try not to get any fly line in the water. Try just to lead with your leader and your tippet. Try to stand without any leader or tippet touching the, the water, which is very difficult. You have to really focus. Try not to let anything but hackles and the tail touch the water. So you're, you're leading, you're kind of following that fly with your rod tip up level, probably, you know, 90 degree or a little more at, at some point. And you're trying not to let anything but the dry fly itself, hackles on the front, tails on the back, touch the water. Of course, the hook's going to be touching the water as well. That's, that's kind of my... I can do that a lot of times. I used to be really good at it whenever I lived in Knoxville and fished the Smokies and fished Teleco and fished the Hiawassee quite a bit and the Clinch a little bit, although those are a little bit different water, types of water. But my, my absolute goal, the thing that I really wanted to focus on was making sure that a lot of a lot of fly line wasn't touching the water, making sure that I could keep that tippet off the water if I could, you know, if I was in the right position. So that, I think, would be my, my answer to that is tails – and hackles. That'd be the only thing to let touch the water, which is very difficult. Takes a lot of focus. So I know that the, the streams in North Georgia are very similar to like Teleco uh, in a lot of ways, and the Great Smoky Mountain National Park in a lot of ways. So Jimmy, if the if the streams are up there in North Georgia are pretty close to that, can you kind of give us an idea of what your uh, answer would be for the best tip you can give for fishing small dry or dry flies on small mountain streams? Yeah, David, uh, and you're right. <clears throat> the streams in northeast Georgia are very similar to uh, Tennessee and uh, North Carolina, particularly in the park. What I consider a small stream is probably something less than 10 or 12 feet wide. Yeah. A uh, lot of rhododendron, mountain laurel, blowdowns, that kind of thing. So it can be a challenge, but it's uh, it's all part of the experience, and it's all, it's all fun. I, I like you. And my number one piece of advice is don't feel like because you're on a small stream fishing for small fish 
that you have to fish small flies. As uh, I tell a lot of people, these fish live in streams that, where there's not an abundance of food. And as a result, I, my, my comment is they bite first and ask questions later. <laughs> if they see something coming downstream, and I can't tell you how many fish I've seen come up and take a dead hemlock needle, you know, <laughs> off the surface. And, and, and I, you know, I'm sitting there trying to match the hatch and everything else. And, and the fish just came up and ate a dead leaf. So, uh, so you don't have to fish tiny, tiny flies because the fish are in constant survival mode and looking for something to eat. If they can get their mouth around you, you can catch, I, I, I think a, a big thunderhead is a great fly as is a parachute Adams. Uh, my favorite fly probably is a is a royal trude mm -hmm. because it's got that big white calf tail wing on it and one of the things that as i have more birthdays <laughs> I, uh, I i can see less and less and so i want a fly that i can that i can see I, it's almost to the point where if the fish wouldn't take a fly that size i've still got a fish to fly that size because i can't i can't see a size 18 or 20 blue wing olive on a on a mountain stream covered with rhododendron. So uh, yeah, just go with something big that looks like food to them. I think that I think that's wise right there. Yeah, we we've we've got a we've got a young guy that just started guiding for us and uh, one of the one of the tests we have is they have to go out with uh, Jake Garland, our shop manager, general manager. They have to go out and uh, kind of outfish him, he says, you know. <laughs> and so uh, uh, we knew that this guy loved small stream, and so that's what we did. The Jake took him to small stream. He'd never been on this particular stream before, and he pulls out a hopper pattern and proceeds to just wipe them out. I mean, yeah, not a giant hopper pattern, not not a you know a tarantula or a uh, Chernobyl ant or something like that, but but a hopper nonetheless. Now, in all honesty, in, in, in that environment, they probably have never seen a grasshopper. Yeah, Grasshoppers right. are around meadows and open fields and things like that, not in the middle of a, of a rhododendron thick. But they thought it had legs and it looked buggy and it was floating on the surface, and, and they took it. Just uh, don't handicap yourself by feeling like you've got to uh, you got to fish tiny, tiny flies for tiny fish, that kind of thing. You know, yeah. and... And those bigger flies, and I, I'm an advocate for bigger flies because I'm like you. The more birthdays I have, the harder mm -hmm. it is for me to see that little stuff. You know, you're eventually going to get out of that nice placid riffle, you know, or that nice long, deep run, and you're going to get into some rougher water. Mm -hmm. It's much, much, especially in the, some of the the more quicker running water around rocks and stuff like that where you're going to be trying to guide the fly through. Eventually, you're going to look away from the thing. You want to yeah. be able to look back and find it right away. And if yeah. it's not there, you'll know that it's not set there. Set the hook. Set the hook, right. <laughs> and rule number one is if you look away, set the hook. But but we don't yeah. always do that, of course. But Right. The fish know, though. Yeah, they know. I know. Yeah. I, I think sometimes I'll turn my hat sideways so they think I'm looking away. And sometimes you get, a bite, <laughs> you get a bite that way. I'm kidding. I don't do that. I really do that. I'm sorry I do. Uh, if it's really slow, I'll do that. <laughs> oh so i think we hit that one pretty good what do you think dan yeah that's uh that's wise stuff there and i'm i definitely am an advocate for big flies and i think what's it's interesting about what, what both of y'all said is that you know it's really hard to not only see when you get a strike but it's really hard to fish a dry fly as well if you can't see it so keep that thing floating high yeah that's that's super good advice 
Well, let's move on to question number two. So Jim asked this question, and Jim made it into this po- this uh, episode twice somehow. I'm not sure how Jim did that, but he had two really good questions. His first question is, I recently started fishing in the southern Appalachian Mountains. So he didn't really tell me where it was he was fishing. Fishing is good, which we should all say that, right? And I enjoy being away. Other than the fishing, what do you like most about fishing the mountains? And I'll take I'll take the the first the first crack at this one. So I I love fishing the mountains. I don't get to do it nearly as much as I used to because now I'm in Middle Tennessee, and it's hard really to find enough time to get off to go over there. Just to be real honest, and whenever it is time, it's it's kind of wintry, and and the next thing you know, it's the next season, and we're guiding again and all that. One of the things that I really enjoyed whenever I was over there was all the other stuff that you get to see. So the the old homesteads, the old plows, the old meadows, the old cabins. The old barns, you know, like up in Cades Cove and in Cataloochee, the old churches. So I really started as I was, you know, when you're driving somewhere, a lot of times you'll pass by some something like that. And on the way back out, sometimes you'll stop, sometimes you won't. But eventually you'll start looking into that sort of thing. So I don't know if y'all, either one of y'all have ever read the book, Our Southern Highlanders by uh, it's by, by uh, Horace Kephart. Has anybody read not that I. book? No? I have not. But I, I know Horace Kephart is very was very influential in establishing the Smokies. Yeah, the Great Smoky Mountain National Park. Yeah, he's yeah. got a, he gets a lot of credit for that. I'll, there were some other folks that are involved in it as sure, well, but, but he gets a lot of credit for it. Right. So this book is about the the Appalachian people and the mountains and the history of the people, the history of the mountains, the history of the way of the people, where they came from. So Scott. Uh, Scotland, that sort of thing. He even delves into the language and and living around the Appalachian Mountains, you'll catch on to some of that language. Well, he has a, devoted a whole chapter of, of the language of the mountains. Uh, he even goes in and he talks about some of the courts and and the the uh, how do I put this <clears throat> the slant of the court and how people could buy their way out of certain things and shootouts. And there's a lot of history there of the courts and the lawyers. He goes in a little bit into make, making moonshine and that sort of thing and how. The uh, the deputies, the revenuers would find people that are making moonshine up in these little creeks that we like to fish today. So I think that that reading that book gave me a different kind of a different insight on where I was fishing. It also made me go look at, at different places that I probably never would have gone to. Catalucci is a prime example of of going up even further into Catalucci after I read his book, and he talked just a little bit about the, kind of the area. He was from Bryson City, so he was kind of spent a, quite a bit more time over there on the on the eastern side of the park but he also delved into the western side well uh talks about the logging and that sort of thing as well so i highly recommend our southern highlanders it's a great book but it gives you a whole different perspective on the on the appalachian mountains the appalachian people the culture and that sort of thing i mean that takes up both sides of the mountains but dan you're over there close yeah uh, so what what do you like? What what's kind of your your uh, what do you enjoy about fishing in the mountains other than Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, you know, I think your answer is super accurate for around here because if you fish up there enough, you start to notice, you know, you'll be on a creek and you'll you'll see a huge cable running across the creek or you'll see an old railroad tie or something like that. Yeah. So you, there's definitely a yep. lot of history up there that you notice. But for me, I mean, obviously, a lot of it is about fishing, but it's not all of it. I mean, if if all of it were about fishing, I'm pretty sure a lot of people around here would trade their fly rods for a bobber and an earthworm. If, if it was all about just catching lots of fish sometimes, <laughs> there are days where yeah, that's right. the case, right? right so, true. But yeah. for me, I think it's the history and stuff is cool, but I also, you know, notice things wildlife wise that I wouldn't notice otherwise if I were just, you know, on a hike. So, you know, you, you, 
when you're when you're fly fishing in the Smokies, I do move quicker on those streams than I do, you know, a bigger, wider tailwater. But you're still crawling up a river. I mean, compared to even a slow stroll, when you're standing in a creek fishing, you're barely, barely moving. You know, I mean, like I said, quicker on those streams because you kind of want to cover water. But when you're moving that slower speed, uh, it just makes it where you notice things you would not have noticed if you weren't fishing. Uh, you know, if you go sit and eat lunch at by a creek and sit in one spot, then yeah, that gives you 30 minutes or an hour where you might notice something like a bear or something you wouldn't otherwise notice. But when you're moving at that pace for such a long period of time, you just notice things. So I was, and this, this applies not just to the Smokies, of course, but it, it applies to fishing other mountain streams too. So I was out West a few weeks back and I was fishing a small stream. It's not, it doesn't have huge fish or anything like that, but they love eating a dry fly. It's a little off the beaten path, which I always like. And so I'm working my way up the stream and uh, I'm standing in one really nice little run and I hear something rustle next to me and, I, and I, I look a couple of times, I can't figure out what it is. I think, is that a pine cone that fell out of a tree? You know, what was that? Well, I keep hearing it. So I look once I get closer and literally an arm's length away, three feet away, there's a porcupine and he's tucked up <laughs> under a boulder and he knows I'm there. He saw me way before I saw him. You know, a lot of animals, when you see them like that, they run from you. This guy has a pretty good defense system, right? So he saw me yeah. <laughs> and by the time I saw him, he had turned his rear end towards me and was all flared up and was just showing me a huge rear end full of quills. And he, he would literally, I played peekaboo with this, with this porcupine. I mean, he would sit there, <laughs> I would sit there and fish and look back at him. I would hear him move. He would turn around and look around the corner of the rock to see if I was still there. Cause he couldn't, his head couldn't see me from where he was. He would see me and then he would slowly turn back around, show me his rear end. And so for me, I, I, it was hilarious. I mean, it probably happened for 15 minutes and he was not concerned about leaving me at all. So if I would have been just passing, walking slowly up that stream on the little footpath, I wouldn't, I would have passed that porcupine by and never would have saw him. Yeah. So that's, that's, that's my answer. You know, I, I tend to, I tend to be a little, uh, I have a hard time slowing down sometimes for, especially for someone like me, that's, you know, a little twitchy sometimes <laughs> for, for me to be able to slow down and notice those things. It's really cool. Cause I, I just, you know, wouldn't notice those things otherwise. I've got a friend that I, I call him the, the army angler. So when he gets in the river, I mean, he wades right up the middle of the river too. <laughs> he catches a lot of fish and I don't know how, but he, uh, well, I'll be darned. Look who came in. I've been texting with her for, for about the past five minutes. Hey, looky there. <laughs> hey, Susan. Hey, Susan. How's it going? Good. Y'all look familiar? <laughs> <laughs> uh, hey, we uh, we were just talking about uh, a friend of mine that's kind of like an army fisherman. He he gets in the middle of the stream, and he keeps moving. Like, he'll cover three or four miles of stream, I swear, every time he goes fishing in a day he doesn't slow down for anything he just dabs everywhere that he thinks is going to be a fish but yeah he never sees anything outside of the river he, he never he, he would never see a bear he would never see sasquatch he would never see a squirrel he would just never gets see, in the zone huh yeah exactly and he's moving yeah. so fast that that he just doesn't see he just doesn't see anything well hey i've been sitting here texting guys with susan here for about the past five or so minutes and i thought well let's just bring her in here so uh let's let's welcome in the owner of southern brookies author of thrasher's fly fishing guide an essential handbook for all skill levels she was a, my first guest 
on the very first episode of Southeastern Fly. She's my friend, and I'm proud to call her my friend. So please welcome Susan Thrasher. Susan, thanks for stopping by. I know you got a little bit of time. You had the sound effects. Yeah. Cheers. Yeah, I, yeah, there we go. <laughs> <laughs> thanks, Dan. I'm here, I'm here for you guys. I'm here for you guys. <laughs> so, hey, Susan, we were just talking about this. So you've done Wisdom of the Gods. You did the very first one of those as well. You, you have a lot of firsts here. So we're on question number two. And a guy named Jim, Jim had two questions in the out of the five that we're going to talk about today. This is the first one that Jim asked, and, and I will get your take on it because I know it'll come from a completely different point of view than, than the three of us. Uh, so mm-hmm. Jim que- Jim's question is, I recently started fishing the Southern Appalachian Mountains. Fishing is good, and I enjoy being away. Other than the fishing, what do you like most about fishing in the mountains? Hmm, well... I don't get to do, I don't get to fish in the mountains that often. Um, so when I do go, I typically go to a place that I know pretty well, and that's up around the Townsend, you know, Tremont area up around there. And so, you know, just thinking about um, other than the fishing, that's what he asked. Mm-hmm. Well, the first thing that pops into my mind is that I know uh, that's pretty close into Gatlinburg. And so, um, the donut fryer is probably the very first thing that I think of that I absolutely love. Have you ever been to the donut fryer that's in the village? I'll have to give the answer is not yet. Well, <laughs> you got to do that. <laughs> so you got to get there pretty early in the morning, especially if they're on the weekends, because they have the absolute best cream-filled donut. They call it the manager mm. special. It's amazing. So I've been going there ever since I was about six or seven years old wow. <laughs> so that's a long time wow <laughs> a long time that's what 20 years remember... <clears throat> is that 20 years I can... yeah that's right <laughs> thank you see i just love you <laughs> i can even remember getting for christmas we spent christmas in gatlinburg and i got a microscope a sears microscope with slides and we were there for the week and so my christmas present you know we went to the donut fryer and i went up the stairs and Sat there with my hot chocolate and looked at my little slides on my microscope. I was kind of a geek <laughs> when I was little. <laughs> I have very special memories. So, okay, moving on. Um, other things. Let's move on up the street a little bit more towards the park. And um, I'm kind of on a food track right now. So I, I would have to say also the peddler because <laughs> I love the peddler steakhouse. They have the greatest um, salad bar that in fact i'm wondering now what they're doing if they're even doing salad bars you know with the with the virus and all but if you ever have a chance to eat at the peddler make sure that you um just take a little extra time wait for a seat at the window so you can take a look at the stream as it flows by i'm always looking to see if i see any fish come up but they have smoked oysters on the salad bar which are absolutely delicious oh man yeah, oh, they come around good. with their peddling their all of the different steaks, the cuts that you can get. Anyway, that's fabulous. So uh, those would be my food choices. Um, okay, other things. That's probably not what he was thinking about, but that's other what, things I like besides the fishing. That's what we're thinking about now is the food. F- food food <laughs> is pretty important. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I already ate dinner and I'm hungry. <laughs> I think probably when my first thought besides the, the donut and the steak, you know, I, even if uh, – even if I've got all of the equipment that I need and I don't even need any more flies, I'll always stop in at Little, Little River Outfitters anyway, just so I can give Daniel a hug and maybe Byron if he's there and, 
you know, it's a special occasion if I get to see Paula, but um, I usually try to stop into uh, to Little River Outfitters, so that that's fun. But getting into the actual fishing piece or the other than fishing that's fishing related, I think probably fishing in the mountains, um, one of the things I love is just the hiking, you know, to get from place to place. Once you're finished with the day of fishing in the mountains, I mean, you really feel you've got that good kind of tired. It's not the tired you have sitting at your desk, you know, looking at a computer all day. I mean, it's the the tired where you're, your uh, your knees and your <laughs> your muscles are aching from all the climbing over boulders and trying to keep yourself from falling in and hiking up a couple of miles to find the brookies. So I think you know that's another one. You kind of get a um, you double dip a little bit. You get the fishing part, but then you also get the uh, the exercise. You know too. And hiking around the Smokies um, it brings back a lot of memories for me, just the smells and the sounds, because like I've, I've been going there since I was a kid. So there's some nostalgia, I think, that's associated with it. But there's something about, you know, the sounds of the water that's falling over those boulders. Um, I love hearing that. There's something about the, I guess, the, the wet, you know, around on the moss and, um, and the smells. Um, I just love that the colors, you know, of the, the deep pools. You know, and just the way, especially now, the way the, the leaves and all, you know, in the fall, how you can look down and see all the orange and, and the reds, which another favorite is reflected in the um, the brook trout. You know, this time of the year, and brook trout are my absolute favorite fish. So, you know, to see those little, te- those little white tips on the fins and the, the bright reds on the belly and orange, I mean, that's one of my favorite. I think just like the brilliancy of, of the coloring and the sounds, all your senses, you know, from your taste, <laughs> you yeah. know, the donut from, <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> you know, the sights and the sounds and the smells, you know, all those things, you know, come in together. But um, I guess just a few other things, you know, being mostly a tailwater fisherman, you know, I'm used to a lot of long casting and, the nice thing about fishing in the smoke views is you really have to change some things up. You know, if you try to cast like you do a long cast, even a 20 foot cast, you know, in the, in the park is too long. And so you really have to stop and change things up a little bit. And it's challenging, you know, if, especially if you don't fish there that often, it can kick your rear end sometimes, <laughs> you know, it's so uh, you really, um, I think just remembering that you you don't even have to have much fly line you know five or six feet out of your out of your rod tip you're casting mostly leader which is why i like to euro nymph a lot you know i'm a big fan of euro nymphing and it just it works perfectly there i i love the bow and arrow cast that's where um if if people aren't that familiar with it it's just where you hold your fly carefully (laughs) at the hook bend point up and you just rear back you know, and, and put a deep, deep bend in that um, in that rod. And it's amazing how you can shoot that thing underneath all the rhododendrons and anything that's leaning out over the water. And probably, even though it might be the smallest fish of the day that I catch, if I catch one on that bow and arrow cast, that's probably the one that I'm gonna remember the most because I really had to execute it perfectly to keep from being in the limbs, you know, or the bushes. And then when they come up to sip that fly, it's just, it's amazing. Which, speaking of, I don't get to dry fly fish that much. And you can pretty much count on 
being able to, unless you're going in dead winter, you can pretty much count on being um, able to find some dry fly action. So that's another thing. And then <clears throat> I love uh, being able to use my um, my little rods. If I'm not your own nymphing, I have a little six foot two weight hardy rod and I have a little um, three weight uh, fiberglass. It's the Moonshine Revival, which I love. I absolutely, I love the color of that thing <laughs> as much as anything. But, um, you know, it gives me a chance to be able to fish those little rods uh, where I typically wouldn't. So, oh, there's a whole package of things that I like um, other than just the fishing. I don't know. Is that kind of what you were thinking? Huh? Yeah. Yeah. So we're all hungry. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I checked. The peddler's open. They've got a few restrictions, <laughs> but the peddler's open. And you were talking about casting under that, using the bow and arrow cast to cast under that rhododendron. To me, one of the, and I don't want to move into the fishing too much because that wasn't the question, but I will say this, that casting that dry fly on a bow and arrow cast, number one, you're right, keep the point of the hook up. That's critical. <laughs> uh, if you've ever pointed it down, you'll know right away that's the wrong way to do it. Uh, but it's about solving the puzzle. Everything up there is kind of a puzzle when you get into the fishing. And I think it's 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 yeah. important that you learn it'll teach you different techniques if you'll just mm -hmm. if, if not you'll end up passing up a lot of good water and a yeah. lot of opportunity so yeah solving that puzzle is a big thing for for the fishing part so all it takes is though i don't know if you've noticed this it, it this works for me if i can break the ice and and just hook one fish it's like it, it the confidence level you know just skyrockets and they're like okay i do know what i'm doing <laughs> It helps with timing a ton too, you know, the, t the oh, fish yeah. in the Smokies are, have a, a different timing, it seems, than a lot of other places. So once you can get uh -huh. that, you know, if you go, if I personally go fish somewhere else and then I go back to the Smokies, I'm usually off a little bit. I'm usually a little late. Yep. And then as soon as I, I get a, a fish or two that'll eat the dry fly, you know, you'll settle back into that rhythm. But yeah, that's totally right. If you get that first one out of the way, <laughs> yeah, feeling good. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. It'll be a good day. Yeah. yeah. Right. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. It, exactly. If you go out west and fish cutthroats, it takes you forever to get back in the rhythm when you get back in oh, the places. Yeah. 100%. Yeah. 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 Mm -hmm. Wow, Susan, that was a good answer. It took us from, from food to fishing to to the different fly shops over there. And just really, I knew it'd be a good answer if I, I brought you in here. <laughs> well, fishing in the mountains is always on the top of my mind. So, you know, if I can get out there to do it, again, those are the first things that, that roll into my mind. Okay. I got to get that little, you know, that short little rod out and going to see Byron, you know, it's just all those things right in the list. So that's, that was a softball question. So thank you. <laughs> <laughs> well, they learned about the bow and arrow cast too. So I don't think it's all softball. Well, I know you've got some things you've got to do. You were telling me that you've got to get somewhere. So I appreciate you stopping in here and, well, and talking with us. thanks for having me. It's so good to see y'all. We got to get out and fish. Yeah, yeah. Too. we do. We do, for sure. It, was that an invitation? Wait. <laughs> <laughs> got Jimmy's oh, attention. Hold on. I got to ask, can you row a boat? I can. I've been one, in one today. <laughs> Yay, then you're invited. <laughs> uh, all right, Susan. Well, I appreciate it. Okay. Right. See you good later. Good to see you, Susan. Bye. Take care. So you have a good evening. Okay, bye -bye. All right. Wow. That's, she always gives great answers that come from a totally different perspective. Yeah. Uh, even, I love yeah. it. 
the donut fryer. You know, you couldn't name a restaurant that today because the, the word fry has got <laughs> such a bad kind of, you know, Kentucky Fried Chicken oh, doesn't yeah, even yeah. say they've got yeah. Kentucky Fried Chicken anymore. Yep. Yeah. So, but the donut fryer that's been there for since she was a kid. Oh, yeah. 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 I used to go there as a kid myself. I grew up in North Alabama, but we would come up here to the Smokies once once a year, sometimes twice. That's one of the first things my mother would do. She'd take us to the donut fryer and go in there. That was the first place I ever had a cake donut. There's a really well-known donut place in my hometown, but I always got glazed, just regular glazed donuts. Yeah. First place I ever had a, a nice cake donut. Okay, so so let me tell you this. We, we rolled into Gatlinburg a couple of years ago. It was about 1130 at night. When, well, let me back up. We were in Pigeon Forge about 11.30 at night. We didn't find our cabin until about 12.15. But we rolled through there, and, it, and I, I thought to myself, as soon as we got into Pigeon Forge, I thought, I, if that if that red light's on at Krispy Kreme down there at the foot of the mountain, I'm stopping. <laughs> so I'm, I'm driving yeah. out there. We've got the dogs in the truck, and it's just me and my wife. And and I started turning in there, and Isla goes, "What? What are you doing?" I said, "The red lights on me. You got to stop with the red lights on." <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, love it. Uh, well, hey, let's move on down to the next question here. I didn't write the name down the the down the name of the person who asked this one, but it's it's actually a question that everybody really wants to know. This puts a little different spin on it. Everybody wants to know the answer to this question, but everybody is afraid to ask it in the way that you would think we would ask it. So I'm going to ask a question of you two. I don't expect you to tell me your favorite stream in the Appalachian Mountains. What's your second favorite stream and why? <laughs> <laughs> oh, so, Jim, the, the Appalachians run down there in Alabama. Uh, if you follow the Appalachian Trail, it starts in Georgia. So let's start in Georgia. Jimmy? Uh, don't tell us your favorite stream, but what's your second favorite stream, and why is it, why is it your second favorite stream? Uh, the, the the local uh, Trout Unlimited chapter in northeast Georgia is called the Raven Chapter in Raven County. They're notorious for their answer to this question, and the answer is, I don't believe I see it. So <laughs> I mean, I'll just I'll just pass this on to Dan. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, no, I, you know, gosh, I mean, this sounds crazy. I've got so many streams that I just love to fish. And of course the ones closest by, you know, I fish them more often and, and, and they've got a special place in my, my heart. Uh, but I, I think, I, I think I can easily say my second most favorite, uh, small stream is the upper Chattooga river up near where Georgia, South Carolina and North Carolina all come together place called Ellicott Rock, which was uh, supposedly the surveyor marked Ellicott Rock, and they did. They marked the rock, but that was uh, to discern where Georgia, South Carolina, and North Carolina all came together. But the upper Chattooga River, it's it's a little larger than most small streams that I fish. It may be maybe 20 feet across in places and uh it's almost all wild brown trout and uh every if you're if you're downstream from that area a mile or two you'll get into some uh stalker rainbows that they stock them at the bridge a few miles downstream and there some of those will work their way up but by and large when you're up there you're you better be in brown trout mode it's just a very unique place to fish and has some really interesting hatches up there and uh which you know we don't we don't get prolific hatches here in north georgia most of the hatches 
that are prolific that people probably don't aren't even aware of occur at night. I didn't even know this. So a friend of mine was working on his master's degree in fisheries biology from Clemson. And, and he was doing a radio telemetry study on the upper Chattooga. And uh, he had he had caught a few wild browns and inserted radio transmitters in them. And he'd come in right before dark. And this is interesting. He knew where these big fish were. And he would watch people fish by them all day long. Oh, and he wow. knew that the fish was, it was right under one, one specific rock. And it would come out right at dusk and feed all night. And then the next morning, right before sunup, went right back under that rock. Let people walk by him all day long. Nobody ever knew he was there. That's cool. That is cool. Yeah. <laughs> That's really cool. But he was telling me, we actually have some massive insect hatches that just happen at night. I'm not one to spend a lot of time wading the Chattooga River <laughs> in the dark. So I'm probably going to miss those for the rest of my life. But I know they're up there. <laughs> Has anybody ever fished dries at night? I, I don't know. I mean, I fished them I when it was so late I couldn't see them. And you just... Yeah. You set the hook when you heard a fish fries. Right, right. But uh, but as far as just at night, I don't know. I had, uh, David, I think you're familiar with this area. <laughs> I went on a trip <laughs> up to Michigan a few years ago yeah. for the, uh, to fish the Asable and the Manistee yep. during the hex hatch. And oh, yeah. the, the year we went, the hexes were super late. Um, they said it was the latest they'd been in like 20 years. So we didn't really see many hexes, but the drakes hatched right before the hexes. Oh, so the nice. drakes were out and so we caught drake hatches but it was the craziest thing because we lit we had kayaks and we literally would put on at five o'clock in the evening float to our spot with some food get set up and then eat and then you know the bugs wouldn't start you, you get some spinners that would come down of course it stays light super late so spinners are coming down it's getting dark at 10 and then you have a new hatch of, of drakes you know they don't come off till like 1 a.m <laughs> and so these guys were telling me about it the guys went with had, had been there a bunch and they said yeah we're, we won't fish during the day and i thought i'm gonna fish during the day and they said it's not worth it don't even worry about it and i tried it of course and it wasn't worth it um <laughs> but yeah so you you, you fish to these fish by sound you know you literally hear these fish rising walk three steps try to hear him rise again walk three more steps and then try to drift that fly over his head but i had a really hard time with it to start with you know i was trying to gauge how far they were by sound i was also trying to figure out where my fly was and it was really tough but then you you, you know you hear a take and you assume they get your fly yeah <laughs> set the hook and see and hope you know uh, pretty wild yeah when I went, I we went. We did the same thing. Float for a while. Stop. We ate dinner. Actually, birds started coming to the edge of the trees. The guide says, "Yeah, yeah. It's totally on the night. Get ready." We started fishing. We fished all the way to dark, and I, I don't know how many big brown trout I caught, but several. Mm -hmm. And I said, "Hey, man, Evan, we can go on. You know, if you if you don't want to be out all night, I'm good." So we started going. He said, "Well, let's fish the next mile or so." And I said, "Well, I can't see the fly anymore." And he said, "You know, we'll go fit. Go ahead and fish anyway." And I said, "Well, how am I going to go?" know if i get a hit and he just said you're gonna know that's all he <laughs> <Yeah>. told me <laughs> and so we we heard one a, a big fish go off and he said just cast 45 degree angle you know just cast over that way i did next thing i knew i was setting the hook i never i don't remember hearing anything i sure yeah. didn't see anything i'm sure i heard it but it wasn't zen. registering yeah zen fishing it must be zen fishing yeah yeah that was <laughs> like, like you can't re you can't rely on your eyes anymore so right right who knows who knows yeah yeah well dan that's not get, gonna get you out of telling somebody what your second favorite stream is <laughs> oh, just so you know man. i thought if yeah, i talked about something else your favorite stream can't be in michigan yeah right yeah exactly that's not the answer hey, hang on let me look at the for. question did, did he say <laughs> local or yeah. no i i um 
No, I do. I do have. I do have an answer for this question, and and I'm not. I'm not going to be making anyone mad or talking about a spot that's you know, off limits or anything. But my mine is uh, my second favorite stream. I would have to say in the Smokies, uh, or really Southern Appalachians, is Abrams Creek. And you know, Abrams Creek is super fabled. It's written about a bunch. Uh, it's it starts up in Cades Cove. It literally bubbles out of the ground as a spring, and so it has some characteristics about it that are different than the other streams in the park. It's a much more basic pH. There are some really big insect hatches, especially relative to the rest of the Smokies, you know, like, or the Appalachians, like Jimmy was saying. There's a lot more, a lot of bug life. It's just a really interesting creek. It's got a lot of different types of water too. So there's a lot of different sections. If you want to fish right next to the truck, you can. If you want to hike a long way and get super remote, you can do that too. Um, everybody kind of has their, if, if you fished the remote sections of Abrams, there are a lot of people that have bad stories about you know thinking they were gonna have to spend the night out there because they took a wrong turn and that sort of thing but abrams is just a super super cool creek i've always really liked it since i've been living up here you know i can get to it in about i can be to the to the trailhead in between 45 minutes and an hour but another thing that that i like about abrams that is pretty contradictory to my personality is i've gotten to where i do like the drive to abrams creek and you know if you've never been there you drive I drive, at least from where I live, I drive through Townsend. I go towards Abrams Creek or towards Cades Cove. And then you have to get in the, the one way Cades Cove loop, which is usually completely loaded with tourists. And it's one lane. And if, you know, if wildlife pops out, you're going to be waiting there for a long time, but it's almost always bumper to bumper. And it used to drive me crazy. And honestly, when I pull up to Cades Cove most of the time and I see that first line of traffic, I go, why did I do this? What am I doing? And then, and you know, there's nothing you can do. You just got to cruise along and uh, it slows me down a little bit. I've had time to, to slow down and, and I, you know, get to, I, once I get to the trailhead, I'm in, I'm excited about fishing. I've had the windows down looking at deer that I otherwise probably would have zoomed past. So Abrams has multiple, re, you know, things that I like about it, but it's, it's a really cool creek. I've gotten, I've had some really difficult days. It can be a super, super tough river to fish, but I've had some really, really spectacular days out there too. So I think that's my, that's my second one would be Abrams Creek. Abrams is number one for busting your butt, right? Oh my gosh, for sure. You know, I mean, <laughs> all the streams that all of us fish around here are definitely slicker than most trout streams. And if you don't believe me, just start paying attention when you see people fishing up there that don't look like they fish the Smokies very often and then watch them walk through the stream in their rubber soled boots because it usually doesn't work no, out too well. <laughs> but Abrams especially, it's got that slick bedrock, but a lot of it is also angled. So if yeah. you start sliding, you're, you're going to the bottom. <laughs> Where, however deep it is, you're sliding all the way to it, you know. Jimmy, you were going to ask something. My best uh, fishing buddy here, he's from New Jersey. And he had moved to Knoxville to start grad school in fisheries biology. And he got the idea he was going to go fish Abrams. <laughs> and he got out there and he started making that big, long loop. And it started getting late. And he made the, uh, the bad choice of thinking he could cut across. Ooh. Oh, no. Oh, yeah. He did spend the night yeah out there i don't doubt it he spent the night out there the next morning it was snowing on him when he woke up he never actually <laughs> went to sleep it was snowing so it's uh it was a real lesson on welcome welcome to the southern appalachian wow yeah. wow well, i was right that's yeah. awful yeah <laughs> one yeah yeah one of those one of those i'll call them backcountry sections the hike to get to them doesn't seem like it's going to be that backcountry when you get in it you know you're in that loop and you can't can't get out of the, the stream there's too much rhododendron and if you 
get out of the water and think because you know in your mind you just get super turned around because it's just a big loop so you think oh it's just just around the corner you know yeah you start to slow down and yeah it can be bad i almost spent the night up there one night too luckily i did it i didn't i didn't i got out but it was close good answers on your second favorite stream i guess we'll talk after this and y'all let me know what your favorite stream is (laughs) (laughs) that's for that's for after we stop recording yeah right yeah exactly (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) Here's the next question. And if you remember Jim from the second question, this is the same Jim that made it in here twice. His question is, what is the most common cast you use while fishing small streams in the Appalachians? So to do this, we probably really need to get us to qualify our definition of a small stream. Because I'm sure it's probably a little different between, between the three of us. Identify one type of water that you most commonly enjoy fishing in the cast and using the cast as well and then probably we need to talk about the cast so dan other other than uh some of the things that we've already talked about if you could qualify your definition of a small stream and then identify one type of water that you most commonly enjoy using and then talk about the most common cast you use when fishing small streams of the appalachian mountains jimmy i think we'll go to you next after dan okay so first off as far as is qualifying the small streams at least what i'm going to talk about you know with this answer is uh you know jimmy earlier said 10 to 12 feet i think you know for that's a really average size for for the smokies in the southern appalachians but you know this cast will certainly work on a stream that's the one i'm going to talk about is certain it'll work on bigger streams and and it's going to be most effective on types of streams that are a little bit flatter lower gradient than some of the other ones that that you see in the appalachians so some some streams are super high gradient big boulders plunge pools and i I love fishing those too I, i love them all but i find myself liking streams that are a little bit lower gradient have a little bit more gradual riffles you know and so this cast works super well on water like that i will before i say what it is you know your point earlier about keeping all your fly line and your leader and your tippet off the water is a thousand percent i think what most people do wrong in the southern appalachians but when if you're fishing a stream that's a little bit bigger for the for the southern appalachians a reach cast, or I guess technically it's a mend because it does it does kind of happen after you stop your the casting motion. A reach cast is something that I use all the time on lots of different water, um, and it's exceptionally helpful. A lot of people, you know, over the years, a lot of people have asked me how to do it or, hey, could you show me a reach cast? They've heard about it. And what ends up happening is most people that fish quite a bit, if they haven't had cat much casting training, that really doesn't matter. If you fish quite a bit, you probably already use one. And all it is, is essentially after you stop your rod tip on your, on your forward cast to let that line lay down, after you stop your rod tip, you're really just moving your rod one way or another to manipulate your line before it lands on the water so that you don't have to mend. You know, in those small streams, especially right when your fly hits, that's normally your best chance. Your first cast, as soon as your fly hits or within the first few seconds, that's your best chance at a take. And so if you're cast and then th- and you're making longer casts on maybe a bigger stream, if you make that cast and then you throw a mend in there, sometimes you blow the fish that was gonna eat it. So that reach cast is super, super helpful because even if you're fishing with a short seven foot rod, starting here and people that are listening can't see my hand, but if I start at the midline of my body, that's 14 feet around me that I can manipulate that line and you can do so much with it so that when the fly lands all you have to do is focus on the fly hope that you can set the hook quick enough so i i really utilize a reach cast a ton so the reach really is you're right it's a it's a mend 
Uh, but the rig exactly, yeah, yeah, it happens after the stop, but before the delivery of the fly, you have to move that that rod tip one way right or or right. left one way or the other. Right, and you don't have to move the rod super quickly. You know, I see that quite a bit. If someone's <laughs> trying to learn how to do a reach cast, it almost looks like um, if you if you've seen someone do like a curl cast, that's a little bit more can, can be a little bit more of an abrupt movement. But that reach cast does not have to be that you stop your rod and then throw the line over if you especially if you're casting short if you do that too hard you're just going to pull the fly back to you it yep. really can be super subtle you stop the rod tip and just slowly lay it down one side or the other and it will like i said it could move your your line you have 14 16 feet to play with there are a lot of people that come on my boat and ask ask about that and the first thing they do is move it too fast right yeah so they, they do exactly what you ask them to do but when they reach it's like they accelerate their motion times 10 and once yeah what, you, what yeah. you tell them hey, just just lay it over don't throw it over there just lay yeah. the tip over because the line's going to follow the tip of the rod it always does yeah. it always yeah. has it always will <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah so so yeah so, in 2020 it may not in 2020 it may that's not that's a right, great Jimmy. point it's <laughs> a great point that's so true <laughs> Well, Jimmy, how about you? What's uh, what about you? Well, uh, this this is going to sound counterintuitive, but I I, I enjoy casting. Uh, you know, Susan was talking about uh, Euro nymphing and uh, that technique, in which is extremely effective. I I just I don't care for it. I like to cast, and I, I, almost almost to the point where I'm with you. I won't catch any fish if I have to do something else, you know, and not cast. But uh, <laughs> that I mean, I, I I guess I'm set in my ways. But anyhow, so whenever I have a chance, I will do a pick up and lay down cast. You know, I'll look behind me. One of the one of the things that a friend of mine who is probably the best fly fisherman I've ever known in my life. His name's Henry Williamson. He lives up in Sky Valley, Georgia. And Henry says, watch every back cast and then make your forward cast. Don't just pick it up, throw it behind you. And then, so I don't, I don't do that on every cast, but I do it if I'm on a small stream where it's really tight and I've got to put my back cast through a real small opening in the trees behind me and then cast forward. So, and I'm not casting a long ways, I just pick it up, lay it down. So I do a lot more than that than most people fishing small streams probably do. But I'm guessing that the majority of the time I'm doing a roll cast or some modification of a spay cast, just real small, short cast, just making it work, making it, you know, getting my fly to just lightly land on the water uh, without spooking all the other fish and everything. But yeah, I, if somebody saw me, they if somebody saw me casting, well, I, I had have a good friend who's an FFF. He was a master instructor, and he was standing on the bank watching me one day. And and I just, I don't even know what I did. And I just heard him behind me say, what the hell was that? <laughs> and I said, what, what are you talking about? And he said, what kind of cast was that? I said, I don't know. It just put the fly where I wanted it to be, and I got the drift I wanted. I have no clue what I did just then, but uh, yeah, but I, it's a combination of uh, roll cast and pick up and lay down cast. It it solves the puzzle like we were talking about earlier. You yeah. just said it was the cast that I needed, yeah. and it it presented the fly the fly gave me the drift that I needed to present the fly the way I needed to present it. Yeah. Have you ever noticed? You're talking about looking behind you. Have you ever noticed that? I would venture to say that we all do this. When you pick up a new fly rod and cast it for the first time, you turn around and watch the watch the line. 
almost yeah. every time. It, almost oh, everybody yeah. that that has yeah. been around for point. a while that mm-hmm. that that has a few gray hairs definitely does it. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I mean, you, you know, what you're doing behind you is every bit as important as what you do in front of. If somebody doesn't get yeah. anything, you better else, have some idea. What, <laughs> if so, somebody say it david that's track the truth man yeah. say it. if, if yeah. somebody doesn't get anything else out of this hour or however long this thing's going to take that right there is some wisdom that yeah. is usable in every type of, of fly fishing fixing most casting problems everybody wants to talk about what's happening in front of them yeah yeah fixing if you take, get someone and you're trying to fix a casting problem with them it is almost always starts with something with their back yeah yeah it could just be going way back too way too far or not enough energy back there, whatever it is. But that's that is true words have never been spoken. Tell that's you. for sure. Good good answers. Good stuff. Yeah. Heck yeah. Well, I think we, we cleared up everything that Jim wanted us to clear up. <laughs> <He's>, <laughs> he, Jim ought to be a dead gum expert whenever he gets out on the water. Uh, <laughs> so all right, let's move on. This is William. This is a totally different guy, guys. Uh William. Actually, this is the last question. I don't know how long it's been. It hasn't been too long. It's been almost an hour, probably. But William asked this one, and everybody who's ever bought a fly rod to fish the the small stream of streams of Appalachian, I don't think that it matters if you start down in Georgia or you go all the way up the Appalachian Trail and fish your way up. Everybody's kind of got that same question, and I don't know if there's really a, a 100% correct answer on this, but we're going to get everybody's take on this, I think. So which length? And weight a fly rod do you suggest for fishing, fishing, he didn't put a G on there, the Appalachian Mountain, so I know he's from around here somewhere. Which length of, <laughs> which length and weight of fly rod do you suggest for fishing the Appalachian Mountains? Let's start with, uh, let's start with Dan on this one. Dan, you start, and then we'll move to Jimmy, and then I, I'll try to close it out. I've got a, I've got what's, what's not really an answer. It's just a, a process. So what says Dan? Well, uh, I guess I have two answers. I'm only going to give one of them. I, I'm going to give the one that I recommend. You know, you said that this is hopefully going to help people that are maybe a little bit newer, just getting started. If I had to recommend a fly rod size for the, the Southern Appalachians generally, I would say an eight and a half foot four weight, probably maybe even a nine foot four weight. And that's contradictory to what a lot of people say. There are kind of two, two schools of thought. So I love fishing short rods in the park because I'm like Jimmy. I like casting. I'm not crazy about Euronymphing. It's obviously exceptionally effective. It's just, I just don't enjoy doing it that much, but learning to fish in the Smokies or in the Southern Appalachians. One of the main things is just convincing people to get closer to where they're trying to fish. If they get closer to where they're trying to fish and they can stay you know, subtle and not, not spooking the fish. If they can stay sneaky, that longer rod helps them reach over all those conflicting different speeds of current. So, you know, one of the biggest objections to using an eight and a half or a nine foot rod is, well, you know, there are, there are trees everywhere. And that's certainly true. And it's, it's difficult to stay out of the trees in the Southern Appalachians period. That's just part of it. But a lot of times, if you're comfortable casting a seven and a half foot rod or a seven foot rod, and like Jimmy said, if you if you if you're if you are using an overhead cast and you're able to look behind you and kind of plan your back cast, if you can do that with a seven and a half foot rod, you can probably do it with eight eight and a half foot rod too. So I do think it gives you a little bit of an advantage to have a little bit longer rod. And then of course, if you're just getting started with that eight and a half foot or, or nine foot four weight, you could also use it on the tailwaters. You could use it for pan fish. So it's a little more more versatile. You know, so I think that's my answer. I love fishing short rods. I have a seven foot fiberglass rod that I love fishing up there. If I had to recommend one, 
that's what it would be. So there's no real, again, I don't think there's any right or wrong here. It's all about how you want to fish and is kind of what I got from that answer. Mm-hmm. You know, you can go about it a couple of yeah. different ways. Jimmy, what do you think? I don't, well, I shouldn't say that. If I'm fishing the kind of lefty, I'm usually fishing an eight and a half or a nine foot rod. But if I'm fishing a really small stream, my favorite rod is a seven foot four weight. And uh, I have an old Sage light line that's, you know, 25 years old probably. And it just is a roll casting machine. And uh, it's just, uh, it's just perfect. And I like it a lot. Now, in, in reference to what Dan was saying, particularly someone just getting into fly fishing and wants to experience a lot of the different uh, types of waters you can get into, uh, you know, you don't want to tell that person who just bought an eight and a half foot five way, you don't want to say, well, you know, you really need to come by a, a seven or an eight foot four way for that. Uh, that's not, that's not necessary. You can, you can fish a lot of those streams with that little bit longer rod. And it is about keeping your line off the water and make up for it by being stealthy and trying to get closer to your fish. Now, I also know some excellent Southern Appalachian trout anglers who like fishing nine foot rods because they like to dap with it and Mm -hmm. stick their rod up under the rhododendron and just drop the fly right on the water. I I will say this, I I have some friends that gave me a 10 car rod. I thought, okay, this will be fun for a small stream. And I went to one of my smaller streams. I was the most miserable human being on the face of the earth. <laughs> because, <laughs> I mean, I had 11 and a half foot rod in my hand, you know. But I found out, you know, we were talking earlier about the upper Chattooga River. It's the perfect place for a 10-car rod. Perfect place for a 10-car rod. Because you've got a little bit of open space. And uh, and it gives you that ability to, to high stick and keep your line off the water. But, you know, don't. Don't feel like you've got to buy the kind of rod I fish with unless you want to go fishing with me sometime and try that. And then you say, yeah, I, I want to get one of these. But you can fish you can fish with an eight and a half foot rod easy. I've also got an eight foot full weight and a seven foot 11 full weight. And uh, <laughs> uh, my eight foot full weight is a glass rod and that's a lot of fun, you know. But I'm I'm kind of in that four weight. I'll fish a three weight every now and then. I don't care for two weights. And when Sage came out with those double alt weights and things like that, I just I saw no sense for it, you know. But uh, I'd rather fish a glass rod than one of those. Yeah, yeah, me too. I think I would too. Yeah, I'd just rather fish a glass rod mm-hmm. if I'm going for that feel. Yeah, you know. Yeah, yeah, that's a good point. And, and Susan was right. The new glass rods are just cool looking. Yeah. I mean, the colors, <laughs> the colors look like they just go on forever. You know, it's just, it's just they're beautiful. They're probably the prettiest fly rods that have ever been made. We're kind of like crows, aren't we? We just like shiny things. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. True. I'm the same way. <laughs> oh, yeah. And we talk to ourselves a lot. Yes, we do. Yes. <laughs> we do, for sure. Uh, I think probably for me, so I'll just I'll just run down my story uh, of of my time fishing at the Appalachians, and then I'll swing back around and tell you what my favorite rod is. So my first rod when we were living over in Knoxville, and I just started fishing the the Smokies. And we fished Tremont, the Tremont area, quite a bit. Uh, we went other places, obviously, but that was kind of our Friday afternoon thing that we would go fish every Friday afternoon at lunch. We would take off and go up to Tremont and fish up lynn camp or fish up thunderhead or something like that but i bought a seven foot six inch browning fly rod 
and then I bought a, and it was a four weight, and then I bought a reel that I thought was correct for it, which was a five six reel. So it was the wrong reel. That reel is still over there in the desk, has been unopened to this day because a friend of mine came over as soon as I bought it. I was like, hey, come here and look at my new stuff, you know. And I bought the right line. I just bought the right. He said, that reel is going to be a little heavy. It's probably not going to balance out. So being the type of person I am, I said, well, I'm going to keep that other one for a spare, and I'm going to run out and buy another uh, another reel. And I bought a 4.5 reel for that setup. And that's, that served me the whole time that I was up in the Smokies when I, when I lived there. Uh, then uh, I decided I needed a longer rod, so I bought an 8-foot-6-inch 3-weight, uh, so I could, and I, that was about the time, so we would go back, I went back several times a year, and I bought that because that was about the time that I started finally figuring out that I didn't have to throw 50 feet, you know, because uh, it didn't and mix up all those currents and stuff. Uh, I went up to the Obey and I prom- promptly broke that one day, so I bought another one, 8 foot 6 inch 3 weight, and fished it, and I bought it, it was a TFO, I bought it because it had a, a warranty and the other rod didn't. So then... Uh, I had a, a very wise decision. If there's somebody listening, <laughs> that's just getting started yes. yeah. buy a rod with a warranty. Yes. People. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Amen, brother. I learned the hard way. Cause the, the other rod had one of my favorite reel seats on it. And it was my, one of my, it was a great color. It was a real light reel seat. And it was like a kind of a light green color. And I just, I loved it. I loved the look of it. I loved the feel of it. And, but I broke it up at the Obey on a fish, believe it or not, which probably means that I hit it with a bead head and then it That's broke exactly the fish. It yeah, yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> Usually I leave that part out and just say I <laughs> So my third rod that I bought was for fishing tailwaters around here. It was a nine foot five weight. I took it up to the Teleco and a friend of mine asked me when I put it in the truck, he said, What are you gonna do with that? And I said, Well, I'm gonna fish it at Teleco. He said, Well, we're going up to the bald, you know, you probably you probably wanna take your other rod, you know. I was like, Thank you for that wise advice, old sage, but I'm taking this one. He said, "Well, you're not gonna you're not gonna do any good with it because it's too long." And I, I said, "Well, you know, I'm taking it anyway." So I took it anyway, and I caught some fish on it. The length matters as far as you know what you want to fish, but now I had proved to myself, well, I can catch it on the shorter shorter length rods, and I can catch it on the longer rings, length rods. And now we've got I've got 11 foot four weight in the garage uh, that's hanging up out there that I take sometimes as well. So now I'm getting even longer, but I think my favorite rod. Uh, is that eight foot six inch three weight? So for me, for the dabbing, for the for the roll cast in in, in the rhododendron, like Jimmy, you were talking about earlier, I think that's it's not maybe not the best rod, it's certainly not the worst rod, but it's the one that I like, and I think that matters more than so I'm comfortable with it and I like it. It totally matters. I mean, you know, people need to find something they're comfortable fishing with to have confidence that they can cast it. You know, the fish don't care what your cast looks like. I mean, if you want to learn how to cast, go to, go to Dan's school. Yeah. But the main thing is get the fly out there on the water and, uh, and just feel comfortable about what you're fishing with. And one thing I've always wanted to do is just find a stick, like a flimsy stick, <laughs> tie some, tie some, 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 a leader to it, tie some tippet on it, tie on my thunderhead and take it up into the park and just see if I can catch fish. And I'm sure that I'm sure it's possible. I haven't done it yet, but I'm sure it's possible. It's gotta be possible because they used to do it in the old days. They didn't have, yeah. have old fly rods or, or fly, rod, you know, they didn't have a, a garage full of fly rods like I do. And like y'all probably do as well. Yeah. I've been up there with a buddy that did that. He gets bored quickly. Yeah. 
He was fishing <laughs> so one day. Whittles him out a rod. And... <laughs> exactly. 100% what he did. And if he's listening, which he he might be, he definitely knows who he is. <laughs> oh, so I think we came at that from three totally different angles. <laughs> yeah. but which, which shows that you can do pretty much what you want. Yeah, there's not really a wrong answer. I mean, no, there's not. You wouldn't want to fish a 9-foot-10 weight, of course, but you know you want to get somewhere in the ballpark of – of a small stream rod for smaller fish, if that's what you're going yeah. after. And in Appalachians, the fish are generally a little smaller. There's some pigs up there too, but uh, but when you're yeah. fishing for them, you kind of know you kind of know you are. Yeah. I think Jimmy's uh, Chatuga story with the fish that everybody walked by uh, mm-hmm. that came out at night or in the evening for the hatches. I yeah. think that's a prime yeah. example of there are some big fish there, but right, you, yeah. you just need to know which rock to fish under. <laughs> so yeah you know I, I think that's a big argument for like you know one of the biggest points y'all just made was you want to have a rod that you like yeah you know you want to be fishing a rod that you enjoy fishing and that is a massive argument for going to a fly shop yeah and true. casting a few different rods and yeah. seeing what you like and especially and i'm not affiliated with any fly shop especially a year like this where a lot of fly shops lost a big part of their fishing season yeah. mm-hmm. go to a fly shop and cast those rods and if you i mean shameless plug support those fly shops if you can thank you but it's just so nice to cast a rod yeah yeah jimmy's show yeah. <laughs> no, yeah. it, it was a strange <laughs> year yeah it was yeah and and it's just there's never really been a year where the the right when fishing season got hot it was like oh you know yeah, we're not gonna have it yeah, it's been canceled. Yeah. Well, and yeah. Jimmy said something that just it seemed to roll right off his tongue uh, at some point earlier. Was hey, if you want to fish one of those rods, come fish with me, and fish it to see if you like it. Yeah, you you don't get those types of offers every day. Uh, so Jimmy, I'll be down Tuesday, next Tuesday. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I want you to bring everything with you so I can pick which one I want to take home. Okay, kind of, that's uh, kind of the way I heard it. That you were going to let me fish them all and then give me one of them. That's, I've, I've got. You'll be surprised. I don't. I don't have any of the new new rods to try to do that small string fishing with. I'm fishing yeah. with those old slow action rods. Oh yeah, you know, those are so nice. But Dan's mm-hmm. right. The, the the fly shops, and I'll give a plug, Jimmy. You don't have to say anything. I'll give a plug for the fly shops. They they go the extra mile. The real the good ones do. There's a few out mm-hmm. there. You know, there's a few turds out there. I get that. Yeah. But yeah, I I can't think of any that I've been in in Tennessee where somebody in Georgia, for that matter, uh, in Alabama, yeah. for that matter, actually all three of the states, and even in Arkansas, if I if I start going around to the fly shops I've been to semi recently, all of them have gone the extra mile to give me some type of information, some type of tip, and to show me something that I haven't seen or or haven't thought of, which is. Sometimes what you haven't thought of is the most important piece of information, mm-hmm. and you can't get that by clicking online and clicking a button online mm-hmm. and, and putting it in your shopping yeah. cart. You just can't get it. Yeah. So. Yeah. True. Yeah. Wow. We've been we've been through five questions, of uh, and I, what I I'll go back and listen to this obviously and and see what the answers are. But I think we came at it from several different directions. <laughs> From to each question and had good follow up questions. So thank you guys for that. Yes, you sir. know the the questions are were in depth. Uh, it made me some of them made me really think about things in a different way. So I know that the listeners out there, like I said at first, everybody can get something from this at every level. Beginner, the immediate, intermediate, even the the seasoned veteran can get something 
if nothing else, it'll, it'll spark, it should spark something in you that says, I want to try that. I'm about as seasoned as you can get. And I still, I'm still paying attention. I'm still, I'm still learning something every time I, I'm exposed to someone else who's doing it. That's what's so cool about this, this activity. It really is. It? Yeah. Mm-hmm. When you get, when you get to the point where you're just not learning anything, you're probably tired of doing it and probably tired of yeah. a lot of other stuff too. So, well, Dan Munger, the owner of Fly Fishing Made Easy, you can find Dan at www.flyfishingmadeeasy.com. Dan fishes the Great Smoky Mountains National Park. Again, live from Maryville, Tennessee. Great answers, Dan. It's always a pleasure to talk. You know, we talked the other, yes, sir. We talked the other day on the phone about some things, and I always learn something from you, whether fishing or otherwise. There's a lot of stuff that we talked about that was semi-fishing related, but but uh, but I always learn from Dan, a good guy. And fly fishing made easy is a really cool concept. Thank My you. understanding from the folks that have, that have been part of it, it's a good deal. It's a really good thing. Appreciate that. I always enjoy being on, David. Thank you so much for having yeah, me. Yeah, man, always a pleasure Appreciate to have it. you. And Jimmy, got to get out and go fishing soon. Yeah, we need to do the musky thing, and we'll talk about that shortly. Oh um, yeah, oh yeah, yeah, we're uh, doing that. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, speaking of, yeah, Jimmy Harris, uh, owner of Unicorn Outfitters uh, in Helen, Georgia, and now in Clarksville, Georgia. I hope that Clarksville yeah. store really takes off, and I bet it will. You just like, yeah, well, you know, I mean, it, you gotta, you gotta uh, admit, not many people opened a new fly shop in the middle of the pandemic. <laughs> so, I mean, we're we're certainly breaking some new ground here. Well, you know what? That's a great story. 10 years down the road <laughs> that's a great story one way or the other i think yep. it'll do great um yeah jimmy jimmy fishes the beautiful mountain streams in north georgia i just love it over there and you're i, I haven't been to the Clarksville shop but i can put a plug in for the helen store man it's just i spent probably when i when we did the last recording and i was i was i had a little wait time in there i sat on the rocking yeah. chair out front and it was the sun was coming down on my right shoulder, you know, through that. It was just uh-huh. for about 10 minutes, I couldn't have thought anywhere else I'd rather be. So just, yeah. I love that place yeah, down there. I, I, I love the shop. It's a, it's a great, I mean, this, this tri-state area, North Carolina, Tennessee, Northeast Georgia. I, I, I if I could, somebody said, you can pick anywhere in the world you want to live. I, I, I don't think I'd leave here. Good for you. I know man. I would. A lot of people can't say that. Yeah, I know yeah. that. No, I agree with you. I agree with you. <laughs> uh, I'm very blessed. To round this thing out, I'm David Perry, owner of Southeastern Fly. You can find me at southeasternfly.com, Southeastern Fly on most any social media, Facebook, Instagram. In this podcast right here is a good place to find me. If you've enjoyed the episode, please give us a positive rating wherever you listen to us. Don't forget that we've got a contest out there for the uh, wittiest five-star rating. Subscribe to Southeastern Fly Podcast. Share it with your friends. Uh, that's really what kind of gets things going. Don't forget the contest ends on December 25th of 2020. Good job, guys. I think we did a good job answering these questions. Hopefully the people that, that asked them will, will, will give us some, some good feedback, and hopefully some of the uh, some of the folks that are listening will also give us some good feedback. You just listened to Wisdom of the Guides, round two. Thanks for joining us on Southeastern Fly. Thanks, guys. Thank you. Thanks, David. That's good enough.
right. That's that's the highlight of this one. <laughs> yeah. I mean, the, the, the audience is out there. They'll be out there thinking. Those guys aren't coordinated yeah. enough to cast a flower. Up. Right, exactly. Hopefully they can talk and fish better than than what they can clap. All right, so 